Hello, readers. It's time for part two of my chat with TJ English, the journalist, screenwriter, and New York Times bestselling author on his book, Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz and the Underworld. So, TJ, when we left off, it was in the middle of Prohibition, really starting to near the end of Prohibition. But before that happens in 1933, the Great Depression begins. Now, obviously, the Great Depression was detrimental to just about every American industry. But how did jazz not only avoid this fate, but really thrive through this time? Yeah, jazz handled it pretty well. In fact, the music went into a new phase, uh, which we refer to as the swing era. What happened when Prohibition died out was a lot of the speakeasies and clubs went under. That whole culture of illegal booze and and the role it played in the uh, development of jazz during those years kind of went through a, a sudden alteration with the end of Prohibition in 1933. And in fact, even before it ended in 1933, it was clear that it was coming. uh, uh, I believe it was the, uh, one of the amendments was passed that appealed Prohibition. So there was a bit of an overlap there where the jazz business had an opportunity to adjust. Um, And what occurred was uh, the era of the big bands, and jazz going out on the road and large orchestras traveling by bus around the country. In some ways, this severed the connection between the club owners and the underworld and the music. The swing era was less controlled by organized crime than the 20s had been. However, um, the technology uh, also played a role. Radio became very prevalent And of course, starting in the mid and late 30s, jukeboxes come into play. So by now, the mob has started to get their fingers into other aspects of the business. They use the fact that they were sort of the founding business fathers of of this business, of the music business. They use that to parlay into these other areas of endeavor. Recording of music started. The mob had their hooks into various recording studios. And um, most of all, the jukebox business, which they controlled top to bottom, coast to coast. Yeah. Would you mind talking a little bit more about just how they mobbed up something so seemingly simple? Well, they were there at the beginning. They controlled the businesses that manufactured the machines, the jukebox machines. And they struck deals with the distribution companies for the jukebox machines, which is where the money was made. The idea was to get jukeboxes into every bar and restaurant in the United States of America. And the mob did that through the way they did most things, through violence and intimidation and extortion. This was kind of a famous era where they would show up in a, in a bar or a club and say, you're going to take only the jukeboxes we authorize you to take. And if you don't, they would trash the restaurant. Uh, and they even people even got killed because of this. It was a very violent sort of forceful taking over of a, of a business. It also played out in the sense that the jukeboxes became important ways uh, to promote selected musicians. And the mob tended to favor musicians that they considered to be in their pocket. Musicians who had played at the mob clubs in the 20s and early 30s became the preferred musicians 
in the late 1930s through the jukebox business. The most prevalent or obvious uh, musician who fits this, of course, is Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra was um, in bed with the mob from probably from the day he was born. He was born into it in a way. And um, and the jukeboxes were a way that um, the mob promoted Sinatra. I mean, obviously, a big part of that was also Frank Sinatra's talent, his, his exquisite talent. I think they put him in a category by himself. But when it came to the business and promotional side of his career, he had uh, he had a lot of help from the mafia. Yeah, th- this may surprise some people, but the second half of your book, it's not all Frank Sinatra, but Frank Sinatra is woven heavily into the second half of the, the book. And there's a specific reason why you did this. Why so? Well, there's a number of reasons. Number one, I, I you know, a lot has been written about Sinatra and his underworld connections. Um and I felt a, I felt the con, a context was lacking. Um, Sinatra did not invent this type of relationship. He was not the only one. He was born into a, a relationship that existed going all the way back to what we described as New Orleans in the early part of the century and the relationship between Sicilians and the club owners and the music business. Sinatra was born into this and had of course, the added element that he himself was uh, Sicilian of Sicilian extraction, and so and his his godfather was a, a mafiosi named Willie Moretti, a very powerful gangster from New Jersey. Um, so it's almost as if this was predetermined for Frank Sinatra. I guess he could have rebelled against it. Some uh, musicians tried to rebel against this system to one degree or another. And they answered for it. I mean, we told the story of Joey Lewis and what happened to him. Sinatra went the other way. He not only did not rebel against it, he kind of embraced it. I mean, he always denied it publicly, but uh, the public record has shown that he embraced it in many different ways. Yeah, and him being born into it also included his mom having a prior relationship with the Hoboken mob. Why was she known in circles around town as Hatpin Dolly? <laughs> she was a political fixer in Hoboken, and she also was an abortionist. That's why she got that nickname. Um, she didn't usually do the abortions herself, but she was a facilitator. Abortions were totally illegal, and they were facilitated by the underworld. And so she dealt with underworld figures in the course of making those arrangements. And um, like some Italian Americans, um, she had no aversion to utilizing the underworld as an edge in businesses that she was involved in, and particularly political, politically. Um, and, and that's just the way it was. And Frank inherited that attitude or those attitudes um, the mob guys, as he did say publicly many times, were around all the time. They were in the clubs. He he used that as an excuse to explain why he knew so many of them and why he was on friendly terms with many of them. It's just that they owned the clubs and they were there. But of course, there was more to it that, that uh, more to it than that. So Frank wasn't afraid to turn to his friends in dark places in the mob to help get his message across throughout his career. For instance. Uh, and this is one of the first examples of such. He became the vocalist for Tommy Dorsey's orchestra in 1940. 
But Frank and the band's drummer, Buddy Rich, didn't always see eye to eye, especially early on in that relationship. How'd Frank flex his muscle after one particular fight between he and Buddy got old blue eyes sent home for the night, not performing at the show that they were getting paid for? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it is maybe the first uh, example that we have on record of how that went down. Um, um, Buddy Rich was the drummer for the band and Frank, came along he came over from the harry james orchestra and he came to the tommy dorsey orchestra and he became the lead singer and that's when his legend exploded all the bobby Soxers came to his shows and frank sinatra became a, a, a phenomenon that would not be uh no one would meet that level of success and notoriety until elvis came along um buddy rich didn't like it for one thing it it had a determining Fact, uh, factor on the kind of music that was played by the orchestra. Frank was singing ballads. He was singing slower songs. So the tempo of the band was brought down and the drummer was asked to lighten up. Hmm. And But Rich was a rambunctious drummer. He didn't like that. In fact, he hated it. And at a rehearsal one time, he and Frank got into words that escalated into fisticuffs and they had to be separated. Tommy Dorsey sent Frank home that day. He said, I need a drummer more than I need a singer. Um, <laughs> and he sent Frank home. And a couple nights later at the gig, um, there was a break between sets. Um, Buddy Rich went out to get a bite to eat and he's on his way back to the theater and he got jumped in the street by a couple of hoodlums who beat the shit out of him. Uh, left him with black eyes and abrasions. He showed up for the second set all cut up with a black eye. And uh, he suspected Sinatra had something to do with that. And it was only years later. They actually became friendly. Um, they had a lot in common, those two. So um, they did become friendly. And a couple of years later, Frank was leaving the Dorsey band. And they had a farewell party for him. And Buddy Rich went up to Buddy Rich writes about this in his memoir. He went up to Frank and said and asked him, he said, come on, Frank, it's all water under the bridge now. But did you have anything to do with those two hoods that uh, jumped me a couple years ago? And Frank admitted, he said, yeah, that, that was a couple boys from New Jersey that I hired to do that job. Um, it was not the last time Frank would do that, would use thuggery to settle disputes. Uh, the most famous case was Dorsey himself when when Frank wanted to get out of a onerous contract that he had with Dorsey and Dorsey wasn't playing along. And so Frank sent a couple of hoodlums, uh, including Willie Moretti to go to Dorsey's uh, room hmm. and say, you're going to let Frank Sinatra out of this contract or else again, this is not uh, an apocryphal story. Dorsey, came came forward on this later after Willie Moretti and those gangsters had died and passed away. Um, um, Dorsey came forward and, and described what had happened. Frank denied it. He always denied that anecdote. Uh, but I believe that there's enough on the public record to substantiate it. Yeah. And the deal that he was trying to get out of was one that he had agreed to initially in getting out of Dorsey's band and giving Dorsey 33% of yeah. his earnings going forward. Of course, Frank blows up as a singer after that and then becomes a big-time movie star as well. Yeah. 
So no, I'm guessing was, he was working was, way more money than he uh, than he thought he'd be giving up whenever he decided to hit eject. Yeah, exactly. It was it was a crazy contract that normally no one would sign. I, I believe he was in his 20s when he signed it. He was not that experienced in the business. I think it was sort of a, an arrangement where he didn't really think it through. And and also he hadn't anticipated, I don't think, that he was going to be the megastar that he became. You know, getting involved in the movie business tended to change everything. The The money to be made there was many times greater than what you could make in the music business. By the same token, Frank Sinatra had to know that if you ask a favor like that for the mob, like the one that got him out from under that Dorsey contract, you're going to be on the hook. How did the mafia have him pay that one back just a few years later, TJ? Mm, that's a very good point. Um, the, the real, the peril of, of going down the road that Frank went down was that, and and he and he should have known this, and he maybe he did know this. Uh, he of all people should have known it because he he knew the lay of the land when it came to the streets and when it came to the underworld. And an unwritten rule of the underworld is somebody does a favor for you, you owe that person a favor. And so they came calling a number of times. Uh, famously, uh, another incident that the Sinatra die, uh, d denied until his dying day, um, he delivered a suitcase full of cash to Charles Lucky Luciano in Havana, Cuba in the late 1940s. Um, Luciano was hiding out in Havana. He had been released from prison in the United States and then deported to Italy. And he was sort of sneaking his way back into the United States, his first stop being Cuba. And th this, of course, was the, laying the groundwork for what the mob would accomplish in, in Cuba in the 1950s, uh, a, a little bit of an empire there, which I, I write about in the book and does involve the music and jazz quite a bit. Um, but in 1946, it was just getting started. And Sinatra was asked and agreed to deliver a suitcase full of, I believe it was $300,000 in cash to Luciano. And he also performed at a private gathering of the leaders of the, of the mafia in the United States who were all meeting in Havana to have sort of a sit down and a conference to de decide what they were gonna do uh, on a number of accounts. One of them being the exploitation of Havana as a new base of operations. And so Frank was there to perform for them. Not too many people in this story. In fact, there are no other people in this story of the mob in the underworld that had that kind of privileged relationship with the underworld. Uh, it's unique. It's singular. Um, Sinatra played it. He kept it secret. Um, it almost got exposed at the Kefauver hearings. Uh, this was a fascinating incident to me that I wasn't aware of until I got into the researching of this book that the Kefauver hearings called Sinatra in on a private session. They were sensitive enough to not drag him into the public. So they gave him the opportunity to testify privately. And they, this, this, this testimony took place at about three o'clock in the morning in, a, in a, an office building in Manhattan where Frank was called in and he was confronted with photos of him and Luciani, Luciano together in Havana. He was asked questions about the suitcase full of money because the government had informants in Havana that were supplying them with information about 
primarily about Luciano. That's the reason that they were there gathering information. But Sinatra, of course, walked in in the middle of all this and was on their radar. And they called him on the carpet to address the issues. And he basically denied everything, creatively denied everything. He, he explained not knowing Luciano at all when he met him. Um, which, which was an obvious, which was an obvious lie, and they knew that he got caught in several obvious lies. There, that was a very obvious lie, and they actually had a um, the legal counsel for the Kefauver hearings had a meeting with Kefauver afterwards. Kefauver was not present at the testimony, um, and they discussed what to do, and they basically came to the conclusion that Sinatra was so well known that to drag Frank Sinatra into the Kefauver hearings would have been a distraction from their hearings. And that it's quite possible that they didn't really have any concrete criminal charges to make against mm. Sinatra. So it would have just been uh, publicly dragging him through the mud in a sense. And they decided not to call him before the Kefauver hearings. It would have been devastating for Frank because at that point in the late 1940s, his career was kind of at a low point already. Right. Yeah. And Frank got lucky there, too, because obviously Kefauver, he did not give a fuck when it came to those sorts of things. So it was one of the two things. They either thought it would be uh, too much of a paparazzi show or there's also the possibility that some somebody may have leaned on him, whether it was the president or somebody completely different and said, look, this is not going to be worth our time here. We are going to be able to take some of these other guys down, but let's leave this guy alone. He really is a patsy when it comes down to it. I think they felt that it might boomerang on them, you know, uh, uh, public relations wise, if they dragged Frank through the mud like that with nothing really to show for it or no criminal charges. I should mention, though, that this is the importance of him not being called in front of Kefauver and not being sullied in the way that he would have been had he been called in front of those televised hearings. Um, well, I feel like he career, caught a break. I feel like he caught a break also with Kefauver not being in that private meeting either. Um, yeah, I don't know why that was. Uh, that was a choice and a decision that was made that he would not be in there. That would that, that was left up to the legal counsel. Um, but I want to make the point that um, you know, as I mentioned, Sinatra's career was kind of at a, a low point through through that period. He'd gotten a lot of bad press. He'd done some mediocre to bad movies his movie career wasn't quite happening and this is the this is the in the in the uh after the Kefauver hearings after he escapes having to testify at the Kefauver hearings his career really rebounds and the mob plays a role in this mm -hmm. he gets art in from here to eternity which wins him academy award and changes his movie career and also vegas is being developed and the sands hotel is being developed starting in the early 1950s sands hotel was designed with sinatra in mind the main uh, performance space in the sands hotel was called the copa room it was named after the copacabana nightclub in new york where sinatra had played famously many times in the 40s so um with the aid of the mob, Frank rebounded. He was the headliner at the Sands from the from the day that it opened. I don't think he would have been there as the headliner had his name been dragged through the mud at the Kefauver hearings. Yeah, it's tempting to continue the Sinatra narrative, which we will hear shortly, but we've just worked our way through 
the period that included World War II. So we need to rewind for just a second because heroin, TJ, had been around the jazz scene since around the 1920s. But why did it become a much more common drug of choice for jazz musicians, especially those in and around New York City around the onset of World War II? Yeah, this is very important subject. In many ways, this subject is the dark nadir of this relationship between the gangsters and the musicians. You know, the earliest incidents we have of major smuggling of heroin in the United States goes back to the early 1920s. And it involved uh, Arnold Rothstein and Legs Diamond and Lucky Luciano, a major uh, heroin operation in the 1920s. This had established a, a link between narcotics and the mafia in the United States that would continue, but not really take hold until the 1940s. The funny thing about this is it involves Vito Genovese, uh, the head of the Gen Genovese crime family, and his being deported to Italy back in the late 1930s and establishing links in Sicily to smuggle heroin from Turkey through Sicily into the United States. This was starting in the 1940s. There was a strategy behind it from the very beginning. Uh, the mob understood that the entertainment business would be a great vehicle for selling this product. And in many ways, the music business and the jazz clubs were kind of designated as a test case for introducing this uh, narcotic into the marketplace. Uh, we know from the wonderful memoir, Really the Blues by Mez Mesro, that he was doing opiates uh, back in the 1920s and 30s in Detroit uh, when he was there. Um, and so the drugs were in circulation and the mob had designated uh, jazz musicians and jazz clubs and the jazz culture as a way to introduce the music into the culture. And so this starts in a big way with Vito Genovese in the 1940s when he puts together the pieces that make it possible for the whole wholesale smuggling of heroin. Um, it was a carefully planned strategy. It involved layers of the mob, including the smuggling of the product into the country, and then the distribution of the product by way of things like the Teamsters Union, which the mob had their fingers in as far back as the 1940s. And that's how the product was distributed around the United States and heroin started to pop up in big cities and medium-sized cities all around the U.S. Uh, the locus of heroin, of course, was New York City and to be more specific, Harlem. This was ground zero for the, for the importation of the drug into American culture. So it hit those clubs hard. It hit the jazz musicians hard and it began an era of addiction and usage by some of the most prominent players, singers, musicians in the business. Like who? Charlie Parker, Billie Holiday, Bud Powell. I mean, we could go on and on and on. It was devastating. Cut short the lives of many of those great musicians. Um, some of them survived it, wrote about it in memoirs years later, like Miles Davis, who wrote, uh, wrote about going to Minton's Playhouse in Harlem to buy his dope. And then, of course, 
the era of 52nd Street, which we'll, we'll get into, I, I hope. And um, this was an era that really facilitated the use and distribution of heroin, even beyond the musicians and, and the clubs, right into uh, the underbelly of American society. Let's go ahead and grant that wish right now. Obviously, Charlie Parker was a legend during this era with a capital L. Why was the Times Square Club Birdland opened in 1949 and named after Parker something that you call perhaps the most mobbed up club in history? Well, this is all very interesting because in many ways, the 52nd Street era, um, which runs from the late 30s up until about 1949, um, all these little basement clubs pop up on West 52nd Street between Fifth Avenue and Seventh Avenue, a two block stretch right in the middle of Midtown Manhattan. Um, and these were all most of them funky little basement clubs that had been speakeasies back in the 1920s. Um, none of these clubs were what you would call glorious upscale clubs. In fact, that whole 52nd era kind of um, created the image of the smoky basement jazz club uh, where, you know, the club was dark and, and not very pretty. And that's where the music was played. Um, and that's where the best music was played. Uh, so this era was very organic um, in, in a sense. Um, and it was completely mobbed up, maybe the most mobbed up era because the mobsters came in and made it possible for a lot of those clubs to open. And, and the, those clubs did become sort of a front for other vices like gambling and narcotics and prostitution. Um, I urge anyone who hasn't seen the movie Sweet Smell of Success to, uh, with Burt Lancaster to mm. see that great movie. It's set during this era. It was filmed on the street in a lot of those clubs and really captures the flavor of what I'm talking about here. This was kind of a glorious era for the music because bebop came on the scene and bebop was very daring commercial uh in some senses non-commercial form of the music very cutting edge true jazz aficionados loved it thought it was the the, the newest phase of the music um and it was fostered in those clubs uh, on 52nd street um it, it came and went fairly quickly. It died out after about a 13-year period. The irony is, to get to your question, at the end of that period, Birdland opens up um, just off the street from 52nd Street, on 52nd Street and Broadway. And um, it's co-owned by a young kid named Morris Levy, who was a hustler and a savvy young guy who was kind of born into the music business, the specifically the club business. And he opened this club at a young age and it was mobbed up from the beginning. One of his partners was a, a capo in the Genovese crime family based in the Bronx. He had all sorts of mob figures associated with it from the beginning. And he didn't really try to hide that. Um, he, he, he's, one thing Mo Levy recognized was by this point, and we're talking about you know the late 40s into the 50s, by this point, this relationship between the underworld and jazz not only was sort of understood by many people, including fans of the music, it was part of the attraction. You know, the idea that you'd go into a smoky little club where there was gambling going on and maybe drugs were being sold. This had become part of the identity of the music, not all of the music, not 
not all of jazz in its entirety, but a certain strata of the music and a certain strata of the music that was considered to be, you know, the most authentic strain of jazz during these years. And so that became part of the attraction. Mo Levy was a character who didn't try to hide all that. He spoke like a thug. I mean, there are some video clips of Levy on YouTube that you can check out and get a sense of his persona and his voice. He sounds like a thug from the Bronx. I think he knew that's what he sounded like. He cultivated the fact that he sounded like that. That was all part of his persona. Um, Birdland was a, phenom was a phenomenon in the history of jazz, not only because it was a popular club, they did radio shows from the club with Symphony Sid, who was a famous jazz DJ of the era. They did live shows around the country called the Best of Birdland, where bands would go on tour and play in different and different uh, cities and spread the brand name of Birdland. And then, of course, Mo Levy started Roulette Records in the early 1950s, which became one of the preeminent jazz record labels. And he carried over all his gangster tendencies into the recording business. I mean, he had a saying that he would tell the musicians that signed with him on the roulette label. He would say, you want royalties, go to England. I mean, he sort of willfully and obviously uh, took advantage of the musicians, but most of them went along willingly because he was the biggest player in town. Um, and this sort of strikes at this relationship in a way that we've been talking about from the very beginning, that a lot of jazz musicians were forced with a choice that really wasn't much of a choice at all, which was these are the people who controlled this business at the highest levels. And if you wanted to make it at the highest levels, you had little choice but to throw down with some of these gangster figures. Working our way back down the eastern seaboard now to Cuba, we already talked about Frank Sinatra and the errands that he had to run for his mob friends from Hoboken and delivering a lot of cash to Havana. How was Havana in the 1950s, TJ, different from other jazz-infused mob run scenes? Yeah, I love being able to put Havana in this book. You know, I wrote another book about this era, of the mob in Havana called Havana Nocturne, which was really about the, the criminal conspiracy that brought it all about. This was an opportunity to focus just on the music and the role that the music had played in all of this. And it was pretty fascinating because what happens in Havana, the casinos, the gambling, the showgirls, the entertainment, this was transplanted exactly from Many of the, the biggest uh, venues of the music, the vice, those vice districts that we've talked about that existed in the 1920s in the United States. This was the Cotton Club uh, in Havana. This was the, the tradition of connecting entertainment and funneling a lot of the money from criminal activities back into the entertainment so that you could present a level of entertainment that that nobody had ever seen before. Of course, this also became the ethos in Vegas, but Havana really was happening before Vegas. And what makes Havana so fascinating is, is that a lot of the music and the entertainment was organic to Cuba. It was coming out of Afro-Cuban culture. I don't think the mobsters expected this or recognized it or even understood it in a sense, but 
once they created this Shangri-La in Havana, uh, the scene was infused with all this great music and talent um, straight from Afro-Cuba. And so Latin jazz becomes an important element in the history of jazz and the development of jazz. A lot of Cuban musicians, Latin musicians are now cross-pollinating, going from the Palladium nightclub in New York down to Havana to play and, and vice versa. And a, and a famous conga player who I write about, John Pozo, who was from Havana, was kind of an underworld figure himself. He becomes a pioneer of this music, both, both as a, a performer and also as a composer. Some of the great songs that we associate with Latin jazz in this era. John Pozo was murdered by his marijuana dealer uh, when he was at the age of 32 or 33, something like that. A great tragedy. He was lost to the music, but in many ways, uh, a, a, a musician who walked that fine line between jazz and the underworld and and his case fell into the abyss. Jazz in the U.S. was toiling near the end of the 1950s. How did Miles Davis infuse life back into the genre? Well, Kind of Blue, the, the album Kind of Blue um, changed everything. Um, came out in the late 50s. Um, jazz was kind of um, losing its popularity a little bit. Rock and roll had come on the scene. Rock Around the Clock, that song came number one on the charts. I believe it was in 1955, maybe 1956. It knocked Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra's song called uh, "Really the, Singing the Blues or something like that. Blues was in the title of it. Got knocked off the number one spot by Rock Around the Clock. The writing was on the wall. Rock and roll was coming into play in the late 1950s. And jazz began a long period of the downward spiral as popular music in, in the culture. Um, it needed an infusion of something new. And that infusion was the kind of uh, jazz that later became known as cool jazz that um, Miles Davis brought on to the scene in the late 1950s. Um, a couple things about Miles that are important to mention. I, I mentioned his heroin use and how that disrupt was to disrupt his career later on. But there's a famous incident outside of Birdland I, I, I want to talk about mm -hmm. where Miles uh, was, he was uh, kind of blue, had just come out and it was uh, a sensation. And so he was booked at Birdland and he was playing gigs at Birdland and he was between sets and he stepped out to put a friend of his, a female friend of his in a cab before he headed back into the club to play the second set. She was white, he was black. He put her in a cab, he turned around and there was a street cop, a uniformed cop on the street, on the beat. And he saw this incident, or not an incident, he saw um, Miles Davis putting a white woman in the cab and he gave him the evil eye or he said, move along or, or gave, gave Miles some attitude. And anyone who knows anything about Miles Davis knows that he's not the kind of guy that would back down. So Miles gave him some attitude right back. And the guy and the cop said, you're under arrest. And that resulted in a physical altercation between the two of them. And the guy wound up, the cop wound up clubbing Miles over the head with a billy club. Miles was wearing a white suit and his head bled and the blood came down all over his suit. 
and uh, newspaper photographers showed up and he he had to be taken well he was taken first to the pr precinct to be booked and then he was taken straight to the hospital a lot of pictures of this incident were taken i have a couple or i have one of them in the book um, yeah i thought i thought at first that that was the pattern of the suit but i looked closer and saw no <laughs> sadly that's blood man fuck that cop yeah yeah but you know what it was not untypical of the yeah. time this kind of incident would happen all the time the only reason it became a sensation is that it was miles davis right uh on a break from playing in the club obviously he didn't make the second set but the reason i include this this incident is it, it gives me gave me an opportunity to talk a little bit about the relationship between law enforcement and the musicians and the role that cops and law enforcement played in this dynamic between Mob and the Underworld, because Birdland was a protected club. Right. Birdland paid off the local precinct on a weekly basis, as did many clubs. Um, the cops were in on this arrangement. The cops, in a sense, were part of it. Uh, and I suggest in the book that the role that the cops played was often as muscle. They were muscle for the mob. Um, for instance, the police department in New York controlled the cabaret card system. Most cities had a, had a type of cabaret card system where musicians were denied the right to play if they had any kind of criminal charge or conviction against them. And of course, this was especially onerous for the musicians who had a, a narcotics addiction because they were, they were easy targets. They were low hanging fruit to be busted by cops and having uh, heroin on them and losing their cabaret card and losing their ability to make a living for as much as a year or two years at a time. It happened to some of the best musicians in the business. It happened to Charlie Parker. It probably is one of the things that drove him into a downward spiral that led to his premature death. It happened to Billie Holiday. It happened to uh, Thelonious Monk. This uh, cabaret card system uh, was part of the plantation system. It was a way of controlling musicians and decided who was going to get to play and who wasn't going to get to play. If a particular musician, let's say, was in a uh, contract negotiation with a recording level, uh, recording label that was friendly with the mob, they could squeeze the musician through this cabaret card system, which they often did. So when I write about these things and the role that law enforcement played and the cops played, uh, in, in controlling aspects of this relationship. That's what I'm talking about. And that's why it's important to get into that. And particularly for the African-American musicians who saw the whole thing as kind of a plantation system, there was nowhere to turn. There was nowhere to turn. It appeared as if the underworld controlled every aspect of the business, including law enforcement. Yeah, people so, should check this book out for plenty of reasons. The cabaret card stuff was uh, another one of those things that was extremely eye-opening. All right, I need to ask one more Frank Sinatra question as we come close to the end here, TJ. Sinatra turned to the mob for more than just himself. How do you have them help out his man crush, Jack Kennedy, during the 1960 <laughs> presidential election? Oh, well, we could do a whole podcast on that. Um, <laughs> I, I tried valiantly not to get into that too much in this book because it's a little bit off subject. Um, but it is the uh, penultimate um, uh, act in the relationship between Sinatra and the underworld and in some ways between jazz and the underworld, Sinatra being uh, a preeminent jazz musician. And I want to mention, I'm going to answer your question. 
But before I do, uh, because some people have asked me why Sinatra is in this book, uh, that he was a pop singer, a popular singer. Frank Sinatra was a jazz singer in his heart, and he was a jazz singer in his roots, the roots of his career. Uh, he adored jazz. He adored jazz musicians. He was always very open about saying the, the musician, the singer who influenced him the most was Billie Holiday. Um, Bud Powell, who in many ways was kind of the hippest of jazz hipsters, he was quoted saying that if he was able to put together his dream band, that Frank Sinatra would have been the vocalist mm -hmm. in that band. I say no more. I mean, that is enough right there to make the argument that Frank Sinatra was a great, great jazz singer. Um, and even, even more important than that, his relationship with the underworld grew out of the jazz culture. It was part of this story. I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought of doing this book without getting into Frank Sinatra. The problem with it is, of course, you, you wind up getting into things like the Kennedy election and the Kennedy assassination and the, and the role that Frank might have played in that. Uh, he got in over his head on that one um, because he extended himself on behalf of his man crush, Jack Kennedy, and he wound up alienating uh, many of his most powerful mafia friends, most notably Sam Giancana, who played a major role in delivering that election for Kennedy. And then once Kennedy got in office and he appointed his brother, Bobby Kennedy, as attorney general, Bobby Kennedy commenced with a vendetta against the mafia, prosecutions of the mafia, um, and they were livid. There's a lot of um, wiretaps, some of them illegal wiretaps that were conducted by the attorney general's office in those years. And there's mobsters all around the United States uh, making it very clear uh, and making it very vocal that they were angry enough at the Kennedys to want to kill them and, and, and take them out. And so it's a dirty little nest of reactions um, that may or may not have played a role in the assassination itself. But what it definitely did was I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and save you there that that no question played into it, at least a little bit. I mean, there were different factions at play, but that was part of it. But it almost got Frank killed. There's a, yeah. a notorious, uh, infamous wiretap of Sam Giancana musing with another mafiosi. Uh, on a, on the wire, un, unbeknownst to them, on a wiretap where they're talking about taking Frank out, and uh, and Giancana uh, is open to it. The thing that stops him from doing it, <laughs> he tells an anecdote to his friend about how he was home in bed uh, having sex with Phyllis McGuire, his girlfriend, who was a singer from the McGuire Sisters, and it was actually Frank Sinatra who introduced Giancana to Phyllis McGuire. And Giancana says, you know, I was home fucking Phyllis and we had Frank playing on the radio and I'm listening to Frank play and I'm thinking, what a what a beautiful voice, man. I can't kill that voice. I can't be the guy who snuffs out that voice. So Frank's talent was the only thing that got him got him through that uh, relationship. He was in way over his head on that one. I assume Frank was aware enough to understand that he was at least part of the reason why JFK ended up getting killed. Like that was being done in a manner that was saving, saving Frank's head in the process. Well, he never commented about it to anyone so that it would wind up in any of the biographies or anything like that. But I don't doubt for a second that he felt guilt about it because you know who did 
talk about it and did feel guilt about it was Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, Bobby Kennedy, it's, it's in many of the biographies admitted to his closest friends that he believed that his vendetta against the mafia had a blowback effect that got his brother killed. He believed that for years. I would imagine Frank had to have had some notion that he was um, playing with fire and that that may have led to that result. He was devastated by that. He was devastated by Kennedy's assassination. That we do know. Yeah, unfortunately, they pissed off the three most powerful entities in America at that time, the FBI, the CIA and the mob. And when you do that and those three groups can come together in cahoots to try and make something happen, as much incompetence as exists in this world and in those worlds, too. Yeah, they're probably going to be able to do something about it. Right. So last question, TJ, we could continue for another 45 minutes, but I do appreciate this extended time. When and why did this continual relationship between the jazz and the mafia really peter out? It, it had started to peter out with the decline of jazz as a, as a commodity, as a commodity in the marketplace um, by the 1970s or so. Jazz wasn't really worth extorting anymore. Um, and some of these mobsters had moved on to rock and roll and where the real money was, and later would move on to rap and hip hop. Um, some of these same dynamics that we're talking about here in this relationship between jazz and the underworld became part of just the music business in America. But as jazz started to wane, um, the relationship started to fracture. And then of course, um, not only was jazz going into something of a commercial decline, the mob was going into a, a, a period of regression that would um, come to a head in the 1980s when prosecutors started using the RICO laws, racketeering laws. These laws were used to separate the underworld organizations from their businesses. And a lot of these crime families, criminal organizations were brought down in a big way. And it more or less was the final nail in this relationship. It severed the relationship between the music and the underworld, probably the last place where that hung in there a little longer than anywhere else was in Vegas, because Vegas, uh, the very model for Vegas was kind of founded on these relationships from the earliest days of jazz and the underworld. I mean, the casinos and the gambling and the, and the jazz and a lot of the jazz musicians who wound up playing in Vegas right into the 70s and 80s when these musicians musicians themselves were old timers by now, you know, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, um, Nat King Cole. These were musicians who had played along with this system from the very beginning. And in a sense, they were being rewarded by giving nice gigs in Vegas, you know, um, residencies for a week or two weeks at a time. That was unheard of for a jazz musician in the United States in the 1970s or 80s. So Vegas was used as a as a, a plum or a, a system to reward the the music those jazz musicians who had been favorites of the mob going all the way back to the 1920s. Mm. So by the 1980s, I mean in the book, I use the fall and conviction of Morris Levy as sort of the the final chapter of this story. Morris Levy was taken out in the 19 in 1988. He was convicted of of, of fraud and tax evasion and a bunch of charges. I mean, the FBI had been after him for decades by that point. The fall of Morris Levy symbolically is kind of, or metaphorically is kind of the ending 
of this story, the last of an old time club owner uh, who made no bones about uh, the ways in which controlled the jazz business. Uh, Levy was gone and therefore the relationship kind of came to an end. He is TJ Lee, uh, TJ English, rather. The new book is Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz and the Underworld. You can get it now wherever books are sold. And I know we've talked a lot over the last couple of episodes on this book. We barely scratched the surface. Well worth the price of admission. TJ, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for this excellent, excellent effort. Thanks, Trey. My pleasure. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit them up on Instagram at Forager Digital. And thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.